Did you see the article that came out in the Washington Post on Wednesday? The title was, COVID-19 makes us think about mortality. Our brains aren't designed for that. Well, I saw that, and I was like, I have to click on that and see what the author says. This is what Emma Patti said. Simply put, to function as a conscious being, it's imperative that you be in denial about your impending death. How else would you go about the mundane aspects of your life, cleaning gutters, paying the bills, sitting in traffic, if you are constantly aware of the inevitability of your own death? She said the logical outcome is a kind of cognitive dissonance. You know all humans die. You know that you are a human. And yet somehow you don't believe that you yourself are going to die. So one of the best strategies is denial. But you've got to live with some amount of cognitive dissonance in order to pull that off. And she quotes a, a group of psychologists who talk about terror management theory. It's a term used to describe a range of predictable behaviors all designed to deny our certain end and cement our individual significance. This can be everything from hoarding toilet paper to just spending our time going through Netflix series. Now, it's not wrong to collect toilet paper. It's not wrong to watch Netflix. But they describe this as one of the ways that we manage the terror of the thought of our own death. They described it as an existential shock that happens to us when we truly realize that one day we will cease to exist and the world will go on without us. And one of the psychologists said this. This is what he offers. I am an infinitesimal speck of carbon-based dust born in a time and place, not of my, my choosing here, for an, I'm sorry, not of my choosing here for an incredible brief amount of time before my atoms are scattered back into the cosmos. That need not be a terrifying thought. <laughs> I just had a laugh when I read that. What? If that's what's waiting us, how is that not a terrifying thought? But that's really the best that our culture has to offer. On the one hand, try to live in denial. And on the other hand, try not to live in terror. Surely there's, there's got to be another option. There's got to be a better way. And fortunately for us, there is. In fact, the author of Ecclesiastes, that wise sage who lived hundreds of years before Jesus, would like to have a word or two with us about our own impending death. He wants to have a, a word or two with us, not to send existential shock through our veins, but in order for us to come to grips with reality. Not a reality the way we wish it would be, but the reality that you and I have to live in. A reality that will include one day our own death. And he wants to have a word or two with us because he thinks that we can learn some wisdom. And in learning wisdom, thinking about our death, we can actually begin to enjoy life as a gift. And so we're going to call our study today, Life is Short, Live It Well. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And so if you want to open your scriptures and find that or launch your app, go ahead and do so. We're going to have it up on the screen behind us as well. But let's pause for just a moment and ask the Lord to help us uh, to think about, to deal with this weighty issue of our own impending death. Let's pray. Lord, if one thing the coronavirus has done, it has certainly got our attention. 
for many of us who, who so easily can push off thinking about our death, we have found ourselves with some existential anxiety this year. Lord, as we open these ancient scriptures and seek to be apprenticed in the way of life that Jesus gives to us, give us ears to hear what this ancient sage of Ecclesiastes has to say. Help us to learn wisdom, but beyond that, help us to grow and appreciate and live in light of the gift of eternal life that Jesus offers to people like us. And so meet us this day, grow us this day, strengthen us and fortify us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Solomon is going to answer a question that he raised at the end of chapter 6. And the question that he raised is this. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? We're hearing the voice of the ancient king Solomon in this book. And he's reflecting on his life. He's gathered much. He's done much. He's one of the wealthiest people in the ancient world. And he's composed this book to help us think about our own lives. So he he raises this question. Who knows what is good for us during the few days of our life that we have to live right here and right now? So he's going to answer that question for us. Chapter 7, verse 1. He says this. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Let's read that again. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. What's he saying here? When I read this, I thought of this little gif of this baby who hears something and then is shocked by what they heard. (laughs) Right? A good name is better than precious ointment, but the day of our death is better than the day of our birth? That just doesn't seem to make sense. Let's see if we can unpack a little bit of what he's going after here. The sage says, a good name is better than precious ointment. In the ancient world, ointment, perfumes, colognes were much sought after. They didn't have access to showers like we have every day. And this was one of the ways that they made themselves presentable. But not everyone could have access to those. And so he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. We're reminded of what he said in the book of Proverbs. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. What is desirable, what is to be sought after, more than anything else, he says, is a good name. Your reputation. Which should cause us to stop and ask the question, what is our name? What do other people think about when they hear your name? Do they say, ah, Jim, he's a man of integrity. When I'm around him, I just feel fortified as a person. Or how about Sally? She has a heart of empathy. I love being around her. I feel more alive and more generous than when I'm, when I'm around her. What do people say when they hear your name? What are they going to say at your funeral? I think this is probably what Solomon has in mind because he brings up the second point of this proverb. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. 
And what's he saying here? Think about this. The day of birth, that's a glorious day. It's it's a day of excitement. It's a day of potential. That newborn child has life ahead of him or her. And there's much potential to be done there. But the day of death is not a day of potential. And that's the day where your life is summarized. Where people gather together and talk about you. And talk about your name. The kind of person you are. What you meant to them. How you influenced them. A good name is better than precious ointment, he says. And the day of death, better than the day of birth. What's he getting after here? Well, Zach Eswine in his book, Rediscovering Eden, or Recovering Eden, rather, said this. Death reveals the life that preceded it. The end of a person's life offers a more sure measure of the person than its beginning. It's the obituary, not the birth announcement, that reveals the measure of a person. So in many ways, I think what Solomon is saying is, live for a good funeral. As you think about your life, think that there's a day coming which will be your last. Just like you have a birthday, you will also have a death day. And so live in light of that day. That's not all he says. In fact, the next verse, he writes, I will, if, I, if I have the honor of doing any of your funerals, is a verse that I will read at your funeral. This is what he says. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. I think probably some of us would have a reaction like this. (laughs) Solomon, you are crazy. Who in their right mind would ever, ever say that it is better to go to a funeral than to go to a party? Uh, What a downer, right? Who would say something like that? And yet Solomon, as he reflects back on his life, says exactly that. It is better to go to a house of mourning House of mourning in in those days, in much of our own history, was the house the person lived in. They didn't have funeral parlors. They didn't have nice places that we can go and go somewhere else. It It was in the house of the family. The house became a house of mourning. And so he says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living lay it to heart. The reason why I might use this verse at your funeral if I have the honor of doing that, and I hope I don't have to do anyone's anytime soon, is because in talking about you, I want people to also learn something about themselves, which we like to deny. And that is we're all going to have a day just like this. And so the living will lay it to heart. And you might be thinking at this moment, this guy is, (laughs) he's morbid. He has an obsession with death. And we might say that, but that would be missing much of the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Over and over again in this book, he says, I commend joy. Life is a gift. Enjoy life. Enjoy food. Enjoy drink. Enjoy your family. The few short days you are given. So he's not against parties. Remember, this was one of the richest people in the ancient world. 
He had a party every single day. He had hundreds of wives. He had a huge family. He had so many people waiting on him. He had parties. He knew how to party. But it's also fleeting, he would tell us. And so part of what Solomon is trying to get across to us is this. Part of what it means to live well is to prepare to die well. But who of us wants to think about that? We'd rather live in deniability or to do terror management theory. But we don't really want to come to grips with our own mortality, do we? David Gibson, in his book, Living Life Backwards, which is a commentary on this book, I would recommend it to you. He says, that's the message of Ecclesiastes. It's an invitation to be a person who realizes that living a good life means preparing to die a good death. We can't live life and ignore our coming day. We need to think about that coming day and live in light of it. And so he goes on and says in verse 3, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face a heart is made glad. Now someone might say, okay, Solomon, I was willing to listen, but now you're just making me mad. (laughs) What are you talking about saying sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face a heart is made glad? That doesn't make any sense. But remember what Solomon's goal is. He's wanting us to live with wisdom. He doesn't want us to be foolish. He wants us to to live in the reality that exists, not in the reality that we wish were there. And so he says, sorrow is better. Better for what? He says, gaining wisdom. And my friends, those of you who have walked through pain and suffering know that those were some of the days of deepest growth, right? I know in my own life, I've gone through some dark valleys and some things I would never, ever want to experience again. And yet, God met me there and grew me as a person. So the person I am today, and I have a long ways to go, would not be the person I am if I didn't experience sorrow. In fact, one of my mentors who lives in Vancouver experienced uh, cancer of the bladder, I believe it was. And he survived it. It was pretty advanced. They were able to beat it back. But he, tells, he told me one time, he's like, whenever I look at a book on the Christian life, the first thing I do is to turn to the chapter on suffering to see if the person actually knows what they're talking about. He says so many people can write about it or wax eloquent about it, but they've never actually experienced it. And it's so shallow. I think that's what Solomon's getting after here. Sorrow is better than laughter for gaining wisdom. I mean, having a good time, <laughs> laughter is better, Right? But if we want to grow into wise people, more fully human people, sorrow actually works better than parties. And he says here, for sadness of heart, a person is made glad. That Hebrew word is very elastic here. It can have the connotation of better or well or to benefit someone. And I think what Solomon is after here is that sadness of face, a heart is made more mature more fully human, more capable of living in this world of pain and suffering, more capable of passing on wisdom to others, more capable of being useful. A person is is made more complete. Again, David Gibson in his book, Living Life Backwards, said, instead of being superficial, death invites you to be a person of death. Only someone who knows how to weep will really know what it means to laugh. I think he's spot on. Solomon goes on in verse 4. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. You hear what Solomon is doing? He's comparing the wise and the foolish person. And he says the wise person is the person that you find processing pain and suffering well. They are in the house of mourning. Much more than a person who just hangs out at the party all the time. That person, he says, is really foolish about the way they approach life. And he says the crackling of thorns under a pot is like the laughter of fools. Think about that. You put on a pot and you put some kindling under it, it crackles. Think about that crackling. It's just like that. It's here for a second, gone the next. And that's why he says this is vanity. It's that Hebrew word that we've been talking about this entire time in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vapor. Smoke. It's just fleeting. If your strategy for dealing with life is just to find a good joke, it's going to leave you foolish. Gibson once again. Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backward. It encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives and to think about them from the perspective of the end. Ecclesiastes invites us to let the end sculpt our priorities and goals, our greatest ambitions and our strongest desires. I have a book on creating goals for your life and what the author does is it tells you, think about the day of your death and think about what you once said about you at your funeral and then go and carve out your life goals. There's much wisdom to that. But my friends, what I want us to see is the limitation of what Solomon is saying as well. This is so important. The greatness of Solomon is that he helps us to live in light of our funeral. But we need one greater than Solomon who can help us live for more than just a funeral. Solomon says, look, the end is coming. Live in light of that day. And there's much wisdom to be had in that. But we need someone who can help us to live for more than just a funeral. And that's exactly why we need Jesus more than we need Solomon. Make no mistake, my friends, death is our enemy. But the good news is that Jesus made our enemy his enemy and tasted death for everyone, as the scripture says, the book of Hebrews. But we see him, that is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What's he saying here? Jesus was momentarily made lower than the angels. He took on human flesh and blood. And because he suffered death and tasted it for everyone, God has crowned him with glory and honor. And Hebrews goes on and says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
Solomon can bring us to the end of our life and tell us to think in light of that end. But Jesus can actually free us from slavery to the fear of death. I think what the author of Hebrews is saying here is not that we won't experience fear as we think about death. My family and I were talking about this a few weeks ago. We're not worried about death per se because we believe in Jesus and we know life will go on. We just don't want to experience whatever that death is going to be, right? I'm I'm worried about the way I'm going to die. But here it tells us what Jesus saves us from is slavery to the fear of death. It doesn't paralyze us like it used to. We don't have to live in deniability of the inevitable, but we can begin to face it and to begin to process our life and to think about that day of death and to think about Jesus' death and the gift of eternal life that he has to give to people like you and me. Because you see, my friends, the good news of Jesus is our days may be numbered, but death days are numbered too. And that is good news. Death doesn't have the final say. Jesus does. And so let's apply this to our lives. Just a few quick points. Number one, let's stop living in denial. Let's stop living in denial about our own mortality. Let's stop living in denial about our own impending death. It's going to happen. And if it, if it brings you unease, if it brings you some amount of fear, I think that that's normal. But let's not deny that it's going to happen, but instead let's process that before the Lord. That's why early in our service we had these words from Psalm 39. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. What's a handbreadth? It's a unit of measurement. How long is your life? Eh, it's about like that in comparison to eternity. You have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. It doesn't mean our lifetime is insignificant. It just means it's, it doesn't last. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. My friends, let me tell you about a time when I fully embraced my mortality. I was in Vancouver visiting my friend. And his church, Protestant church, was having a joint Ash Wednesday service with another Protestant church. And if you're not familiar with Ash Wednesday services, these are days that mark the beginning of a season of Lent, which in many Uh, churches around the world is an opportunity to to set it apart 40 days leading up to Easter to reflect on our own mortality. And so I went to this service, partly curious, but partly because I've been praying things like Psalm 39. And I've been thinking about things like what Solomon teaches us in Ecclesiastes. And so I was nervous going, but we got there and there was some music, like some of the songs that we sung today, there was a brief reflection on scripture. And then at the end of the service, we engaged in an ancient biblical practice of placing dust upon our heads. And the way it happened in this church service was we went forward and the pastor took ashes and he marked a cross on our foreheads. And this is what he said. Remember, you are from the dust and to dust you shall return. But... The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And let me just tell you, my friends, as I stood there before that 
pastor. And he spoke those words to me. I began to weep. Tears began to fall down my face. Because really for the first time in my life, I embraced my own mortality. And in doing so, opened up to me new visions of what it means to be saved by God's grace. My own mortality does not mean the end of me. It would have been depressing if all he said is, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. And that's a biblical statement taken from the book of Genesis and from the book of Ecclesiastes. But that's not all. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The story goes on. His mercies never come to an end. Some of you are going to think I'm morbid. But I carry a coin in my pocket which contains two Latin phrases. One phrase says, remember your death. Or more literally, remember you will die. The other says, other side says, but remember, you have to live. And I carry this with me every day as a reminder that I'm here for a few short days to not deny that, but to live in light of that. And as a Christian, I'm absolutely rooted in a larger story than my own death, which brings us to application point number two. Root your hope deeply in the resurrection of Jesus. If all we had to go on was just a wish that there's something else out there, that maybe when we die we go to a better place, but who knows? That wouldn't be much to, to hope in, right? But we don't have to hope. We can know, and we can know for certain, because Jesus rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul, who himself was the enemy of Jesus and tried to stamp out the Christian movement, who was persecuting Christians and oversaw the execution of the first follower of Jesus, later encountered Jesus and became one of the foremost evangelists for Jesus to the Roman Empire, going to his own death to proclaim that Jesus had come back from the dead. He knew because he had met him. said this to Christians living in Corinth. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Oh, it's no, it's no accident he's using that word vain, tying it into the book of Ecclesiastes. If Christ isn't risen from the dead, all we've got is vanity. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, which means death wins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because of what Jesus has done, those who believe in him, when they pass away, death is transformed bodily into something that just looks like sleep. His own resurrection is the first fruits. What's a first fruit? It's when you've planted and you've sown and the crops have grown and you go out and you cut that first evidence of life. He says, for as by a man came death, so also a man, by a man, has come the resurrection of the dead. Just as our father, Adam, plunged humanity into his train of rebellion against God, so by another man, Jesus, plunges us into his train of immortality and life with God. That's why Douglas Shano O'Donnell in his commentary put it like this. In light of Christ's trampling down of death by his death, we see differently. It is not the exit 
to extinction, but the entrance to eternity. What he's saying here is that because of Jesus, and if you trust in him and believe in him, you have eyes to see what so many people can't see. And that is death is not the end. It is not an exit to extinction, but rather the entrance to eternity. I love this quote by Nabil Qureshi. He was a Muslim man who was born in San Diego. His parents were from Palestine, and, and he grew up as a Muslim, but then began investigating the claims of Jesus. Through a friend of his, they had these years-long conversation. He ended up crossing that line to trust in Jesus because of the evidence, among other things, for the resurrection. And he said this. He died, by the way, at age 34. But he said this in his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Without Jesus, we approach life with the expectation of death. But with Jesus, we approach death with the expectation of life. Isn't that beautiful? So here's our third and final point. Life is short. Live it well. Yes, we have a day which will pass through death's doors. And it will come much faster than any of us want to see it come. But there's also a day which will pass from this life into the life to come. James, the brother of Jesus, put it like this. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Your life is fleeting, but it is your life. And while you live your life, live it well. One of the groups that I listen to is a group called Switchfoot, and they have a song called Live It Well. And in this song, they have this line, every breath that you take is a miracle. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Have you ever stopped to think about breathing today? God gives us life and breath and everything else. And every breath that you take is a miracle. It is a gift from God to animate your existence, the few days of your life that you're here. So what do we do with those breaths? It's a gift from God. The Apostle Paul had his life so transformed by Jesus. And he wrote to a group of Christians living in Philippi. He's, he's writing from jail. He's in prison because of preaching the good news about Jesus. And he's writing from jail. He's not sure exactly how the outcome of this is going to be. He thinks he's going to get released, but he's not sure. But this is what he said. He's, he's asking for them to pray for him. And he says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed. Why is he thinking... He's going to face death, possibly. And he's thinking, am, am I going to be ashamed of Jesus when they kill me? Am I going to recant? Am I going to say, I was just, co I was just joking. I was kidding. Can we just move on? And he says, no, I, I expect that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. The few short breaths that I have, these miraculous gifts of life that God has given to me, I live those for Christ. And when I die, it's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the new adventure. The story that goes on and on, where every day is better than the one that came before it, as C.S. Lewis said. 
I know there's not days in heaven, but stick with me on that. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards put it like this in his resolutions he wrote when he was 18 years old. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. My friends, what if you and I, because we are honest and not denying the inevitability of our death, could begin to live in light of our death? To stop pretending like this life is all there is, but to live in light of eternity? What if you and I could honestly say to live as Christ and to die as gain? What if we as a community of faith were so convinced of and so delved into the resurrection of Jesus that we could freely talk to one another about death, our own upcoming death, but also talk about the glorious reunion in the kingdom of God. What if we're so dialed into Jesus that his life became our life? My friends, that's the gift we're given. He is our eternal life. Life is short. Live it well. Thank you.